All right, if you'll please take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 14. We are nearing the end of Mark's gospel and our time together there. Last week we saw Jesus forsaken in the garden as he was abandoned by his closest friends. And as we talked about last week, they couldn't even stay awake and watch and pray with him, even for an hour. And then Judas came, one of the twelve, and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, with a sign of friendship. And Jesus was arrested, the disciples fled, and he was taken away in the dead of night. But not only was Jesus forsaken, we're going to see in today's passage of Scripture, he was also condemned. He was rejected. In the dead of the night, Jesus was secretly tried by the Sanhedrin. Their goal to gather evidence against Jesus, they could take to Pilate, the Roman governor of Palestine, and present because they wanted Jesus killed. They wanted him dead. And in between these two trials, we're going to see what Ben was talking about, about Peter's denial of his Lord. And as we read these accounts... What we're going to discover, and in particular, of course, this is one of those stories that you know, I've read thousands of times, and I'm sure you've read it so many, many times. That, but this time as I was reading it, I kind of began to think to myself, wait just a minute, who's on trial here? Is Jesus on trial? Or is Jesus the righteous judge who is examining the hearts of those who are seeking to condemn him and deny him? Maybe it's Peter that's on trial. Maybe it's Pilate. Maybe it's the religious leaders who are really the ones on trial. And as Jesus exposes their guilt as the righteous judge, He forces us to look at our own hearts and examine ourselves because we're also on trial. So I think we'll see that as we look at this passage together. And we begin by looking at how the religious leaders were the ones really on trial. And Jesus was their judge. Look with me at... Chapter 14, verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. I mean, it's, it's the whole team, right? The whole gang has come together. And Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They couldn't find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies didn't agree. Some stood and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony didn't even agree on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him. As deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple servants also took him and slapped him. We've, report, we've repeatedly seen the religious leaders of the Jews and, and how they were so consumed with preserving their 
religious tradition and their doctrines because those were really the sources of their power and their position and their prestige. This was everything to them. And Jesus understood this about them long before the religious leaders arrested him. You remember the parable of the vineyard owner Jesus told back in Mark chapter 12 where uh, the vineyard owner was sending some messengers to check on his vineyard and the workers there were abusing them and kicking them out and then eventually started to kill them. And he said, well, I'll send my son. Certainly they won't mistreat my son, but even the vineyard owner's son they killed. Well, the Sanhedrin is fulfilling the prophecy of that parable. They are actually doing that right now. The very Son of God is standing before them and they kill the Son of God, the, the, the planter and owner of the vineyard of Israel. So we see there in Mark 14, 53 through 65, this, this trial of Jesus, but really it's the religious leaders who are on trial. And notice in verse 55 it says, this, the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. So think about that. Does that sound like justice to you? Does that sound like people who are really interested in uncovering the truth? Or does that sound a little bit like a conviction in search of a crime? I mean, they start with the death penalty. They start with the, the, the sentence. That's what they want. They want Jesus to be dead because they're jealous of Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus. And so he must be guilty of what they can't agree. Can't agree what he's guilty of, but he's got to be guilty of something because they want him Dead, And so now they're looking for evidence so they can drum up a charge so they can have Jesus killed. Talk about a perversion and inversion of justice. They're putting the cart before the horse. And they don't even realize that they themselves are on trial and they are giving evidence of their own guilt. Right there they are proving themselves guilty of rejecting Jesus for tradition their guilt. They were rejecting Jesus, the Son of God, for the sake of their religious tradition and the power that it affords them. They proved they weren't really seeking the things of God. They weren't concerned with His will or His kingdom. This was all about their own little kingdom. Building and protecting their own little kingdom. And in so doing, they reject God Himself and erect an idol in His place, the idol of religiousness the idol of their own self-righteousness, because that gets them what they want. It's no wonder Jesus repeatedly calls these people a brood of vipers, wolves in sheep's clothing, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. They are the perfect example of what we heard in our Old Testament reading in Jeremiah 23, about how the leaders of Israel were failing the people. They were supposed to be the under-shepherds of God's flock, but instead they were destroying and scattering the very sheep God put them in charge of. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin were doing. Little did they know that in this trial, they are actually sealing their own fate. In a few decades, in 70 A.D., Rome will come as an instrument of God's judgment. He will destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and scatter the people of Israel throughout the world. They rejected the truth. They literally sought to kill the one who was truth. Notice how often in Mark's account he talks about their false testimonies. 
how they couldn't even agree on their... They couldn't get their story straight. They couldn't even get two people to agree on what they were supposedly witnesses to. And, and this becomes so agitating to the high priest. He becomes so irritated that he finally just stands up and says, Enough! And he starts to question Jesus himself. They cared more for their way than God's ways. They're more interested in preserving their narrative than actually knowing the truth. And they'd become so inwardly focused that they had completely ignored the very mission that God had given them, the very reason the people of Israel existed. You remember when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, they lack that part about them being blessed and about their enemies being cursed. But that part about blessing others and blessing the world, that just that kind of started to fall by the wayside. And so as the priests and the Sanhedrin stand here condemning Jesus, he didn't want there to be any question about what they were doing. You remember throughout Jesus' ministry, especially Mark's Gospel points out this, this idea that Jesus was kind of keeping everything a secret, right? He would heal somebody, he'd say, don't tell anybody I did that. Somebody would start to say he's the Messiah, he would say, let's just kind of keep that under wraps for now. Even demons that he was casting out would try to say, we know who you are, Son of God, and he would silence them. But no more. His time has come. The moment has arrived. There's to be no more secrecy, no more parables. When the chief priest pressed Jesus asking, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, he answered unequivocally and clearly, I am. I am. Now that alone would be enough to convict Jesus of blasphemy. But Jesus didn't stop right there. He kept going. He had determined their guilt. The trial was over. And now Jesus, the righteous judge, is about to give his determination. He's about to pronounce his judgment. He goes on to say, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a quote from Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord. What Jesus is saying is that the one that they are accusing and condemned, Jesus is the righteous judge who will sit at the right hand of God Almighty and at the end of time will come down with the clouds of heaven to judge all of humanity, including the Jewish leaders. He is the righteous judge. Now let's not get on our high horses as we read this, lest we stand accused alongside of them because as Ben talked about in his children's sermon, we can also be guilty of rejecting Jesus. We can be guilty of keeping Jesus at arm's length because we don't want him to interfere with what we think is a good thing. You know, it's like, it's like we think we've got this good thing going for us and Jesus just kind of sends, sort of stirs the pot. He agitates things. And we don't want to put our cushy job at risk or our comfortable way of life. That pet sin that we don't really want to give up. Those political opinions that we don't want challenged. The party lifestyle on the weekends that we think we just can't do without. I mean, we have a reputation, right? 
We have an image to uphold. We don't want people to think we're Jesus freaks. Jesus is fine on Sunday mornings. He's fine in times of crises. But we don't want him messing up our day-to-day lives. So we keep him at arm's length. Is that your attitude toward Jesus? Is that how you live your life? And listen, we can be guilty as the Pharisees and Sadducees were of rejecting God's truth in favor of our traditions. You know, oftentimes church folk, we can elevate our church programs and our traditions to the place of idolatry. Well, we've never done it that way before. Or, we've always done it this way. Can be the mantra of a church that places their programs and their property over the very people that they are called to reach. It's like we want to enjoy all of the blessing without passing it along to other people. We want to keep it to ourselves. And just like Israel, we fail to remember our mission. The reason that we're here. Maybe we've got the tendency to try to preserve the good old days of how we grew up in church. And listen, I sympathize with that. I grew up in church. I was going to church nine months before I was born. We were there every time the doors were open. I mean, it, it, it all Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean, I have such fond memories of running around the church, playing hide-and-seek when mom was in choir practice, you know. I mean, that's how I grew up. And I've got such fond memories myself in my little church there in East Tennessee of how we did worship and the songs that we sang and the traditions that we had. I understand that desire, that nostalgia. But when we try to preserve the past, You know, the traditions, the programs and events, the the musical preferences. When we do that, we've got to be careful that we don't begin to idolize the past. And and we, we, we get so hung up with holding on to what was yesterday that we fail to reach the people today. The people that need Jesus right now. Not in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s. We need to reach the people of the 2020s. How do we do that? What breaks your heart? What gets under your skin? What drives you to prayer? Is it the broken, hurt, and lost condition of our neighbors and the nations? Or is it our opinions and preferences and and comforts? The Sanhedrin chose to reject the truth because they really, they worshipped their tradition more than they worshipped God. They wanted to keep their comfortable way of life. and So they rejected the very commission that God had given them to be a nation through whom all the world would be blessed. In fact, they chose to curse the Blessed One. He's standing in front of them. And they curse Him. Now, Paul has a totally different idea. In Romans 9.3, Paul wrote, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. That's amazing. On the one hand, you've got people that would rather be blessed if it meant everybody else would be cursed. But here's Paul saying he would rather be cursed if it meant that his fellow Jews could be blessed enough to know Jesus. Which are we? To which of those extremes do we tend to lean? Are we more concerned with preserving our blessings and enjoying the good things that we have? Or are we willing to to be cursed by others? Are we willing to lose things? Are we willing to suffer and to sacrifice to reach the lost? 
Have you ever been so burdened over a lost family member, a friend, a classmate, a co-worker, that you, you were just so burdened with the thought that they were going to spend eternity in hell that you said, Jesus, I don't care what happens to me. I'm willing to be cursed if it means they can come to know you as Lord and Savior. We're on trial. We're on trial about where our priorities are. We're on trial about whether we are more interested in the truth of God's Word or over our traditions and the way things have always been. Will we be found guilty? The second person on trial we see is Peter. Peter's on trial. Now Mark has already told us that Peter had followed at a great distance. He comes into the courtyard of the high priest. He's warming himself by the fire along with uh, all of their the priest's servants. And all of this is happening while Jesus is being tried and spit upon and beaten and abused. Now let's remember who Peter was. Peter was the spokesperson, right? He was, he was the, the natural leader of the twelve. And Peter wasn't shy about stating his opinion or about asking questions of something he didn't understand or even pushing back at Jesus on something he didn't agree about. He was bold and brash, which often meant Peter leapt before he looked and, and often had his foot in his mouth. But Peter also had faith. He had faith enough to step outside of the boat onto a storm-tossed sea and walk to Jesus. He had enough faith to declare that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And remember last week, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was willing to pull out his sword and attack one of the temple guards. Peter was willing to fight and kill for Jesus. But he wasn't willing to stand and die for Jesus. Now, to be fair, Jesus didn't want Peter nor any of the disciples to stand and fight and die for him right then and there. That's not what Jesus wanted. And I'm sure that even though it broke his heart in the moment, Jesus didn't want to see any of them arrested or killed that night. I mean, if, think about if that had happened. If Peter or the other disciples had been arrested or killed, the church would have died before it even was born. So I, I believe that for the sake of the kingdom, it was good that they didn't resist, but they ran and they hid. But listen, as they did that, they weren't thinking strategically like that. They weren't thinking big picture like that. No, they were scared. They ran for their lives. It was every man for himself, including Peter. Now let's look at Mark 14, beginning of verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maid servants, so this young lady comes to him, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he went out to the entryway. So he's going to get out of here. So he goes out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. And other Gospels tell us it's because of his accent that he sounded like a Galilean. Now, most people know that I'm not from around here, for example, right? You're a Tennessean, aren't you? That's right. My accent gives me away. And it was giving Peter away. And then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. 
While Jesus was on trial with the Sanhedrin, Peter was on trial too. He was on trial with those in the courtyard. And when the rooster crowed that second time, Peter realized that he was guilty of rejecting Jesus for personal safety. He was willing to reject Jesus to save his own skin. I mean, Peter was eager to identify with the one he declared to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, a military hero, someone who was going to come in and become king and set up God's rule and reign and overthrow Rome. Peter liked that image. But a suffering Jesus? A rejected Jesus? He wasn't so sure about that. Three times Peter denied his Lord, and Luke tells us that three times Jesus heard it. Jesus was aware of each of these. Luke tells us that after that third denial, when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Can you imagine that? You know, we don't mind being like the Peter who swings swords. Zealous for the things of God, filled with righteous indignation at evil and injustice. We kind of like that, but we don't like to admit how often we're like the Peter who denies Jesus. When we feel the pressure to conform to the ways of the world, when we realize that our beliefs aren't the popular, approved beliefs. I mean, like Peter, we can gather on Sundays and sing the praises of the Messiah, the Son of God. He feeds our empty bellies. He cures our diseases. He calms the storms in our lives. We want to stand at His side and be counted as as His followers then, but when it comes to being misunderstood, mocked, ridiculed, when it comes to being left out and persecuted, when we have to make sacrifices or suffer for the cause of Christ, well, that may be a different story. In those times, we follow the Lord, but at a distance. We we love Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, just not too close. I mean, it's easy when we're together on Sunday mornings to stand up, stand up for Jesus. What about Monday morning? Wednesday morning? Friday night? How do we do then? And just as Jesus looked at Peter... When we fail our Lord, when we deny Him, He looks at us too. Can you imagine that look? It wasn't a look of condemnation. It wasn't a look of anger. It was a look of compassion. It was a look of sorrow. It was the look of a broken heart. Have you denied Jesus? On what occasions do you find yourself challenged with the temptation to kind of downplay the fact that you're a Christian. Maybe you thought, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm holier than thou. I don't want to be left out of the business deals that happen, you know, at the bar when we're away on a business trip. I don't want to feel strange when I'm at that party with my friends on the weekend. I don't want to make things awkward, so I'm just going to go along and get along. I'll just go along with everyone else. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I mean, after all, it's just this one time. I mean, God knows my heart. Yes. Yes, God does know your heart. Do you know your heart? When will we stop warming ourselves by the fires of the world? 
and stand up for Jesus Christ. Regardless of the outcome. Think of the love and the trust and the boldness it took for Jesus to die for us. When will we have that same kind of love, trust, and boldness to live for Him? Listen, it's not going to get any easier in this world. It's going to get harder. Grandparents, it's harder on your children than it was on you. Moms and dads, it's going to be harder on your kids and on your grandkids than it's been on you. It's going to get harder. Will we stand up for the Lord? Jesus was on trial for being the Messiah. Peter was on trial for being one of Jesus' followers. And listen, you know, Peter, he wasn't, he wasn't like the religious leaders. At least Peter struggled. At least Peter was willing to follow Jesus behind enemy lines, right? I mean, Peter was taking a risk that night. Remember, he just cut off the ear of a temple guard. And he went right into the courtyard of the high priest. I mean, that took some courage. Now, obviously, Peter's no soldier. <laughs> I mean, I think he was aiming for the guy's neck, and he, he got his ear. Peter, Peter was no soldier, so if he can't even take out one guard, how could Peter ever rescue the Lord? I mean, he's not going to make a, a, a jailbreak that night. So maybe Peter was trying to help Jesus the best way he knew how. He was, he was trying to be present for Jesus. Let's give Peter a little bit of, of the benefit of the doubt here. But, when the moment of truth came, Peter made the choice to save himself. I mean, there's no doubt Peter possessed a tremendous, selfless love for Jesus. I think that's why he didn't run away the first time he was questioned. Or the second time he was questioned. I empathize with Peter. You know, I empathize empathize with his struggle. He tried to deny himself and follow Jesus, but in the end, he denied Jesus and he ran to save himself. How often are we like that? Who among us hasn't struggled between denying ourselves and denying our Savior? It's real. And the rooster's crowing, you know, it had a dual, po- a dual purpose. It was both a sign of judgment, it was calling what Peter did a sin. It was letting him know that what he had done was a complete failure. But it was also a mercy. Because it awoke Peter to the fact that he had denied Jesus and it allowed him to grieve over what he had done and in sorrow repent of his sin. It was a sign of judgment, but it was also a mercy. And so Peter didn't strike or spit on Jesus. He didn't join in the chance to crucify him. Rather, he ran out into his own private darkness and he broke down and he wept bitterly in confession and sorrow and repentance. It was the beginning of Peter's turn from self-preservation to self-sacrifice, from seeking to be blessed to being willing to be cursed for the cause of Christ and to be a blessing to others. It was a moment of transformation for Peter. And it's a word of good news to us because, listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all guilty of being like Peter. We're all guilty of denying Jesus in some way or another. We're all guilty of trying to keep Him at an arm's length, wanting to follow Jesus from a distance. But there's hope. There's good news. Because Peter was restored to Jesus. Peter became the leader of the church. Remember in John, after his resurrection, Jesus came to Peter and reconciled with him and reaffirmed his call. There's hope for us. We don't have to stand convicted and condemned. We can confess our sins and turn to Jesus. 
in sorrow and say, Jesus, forgive me for denying you. Help me to live for you. There's a third person on trial here, and that's Pilate. Let's look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, meaning the the Passover festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. And Pilate answered them, Okay, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again they shouted, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having flogged Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Did you notice how the religious leaders changed the charge when they brought Jesus to Pilate? Remember, they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy because he called himself the Son of God. But when they bring him to Pilate, they understood that religious blasphemy really wasn't worthy of Rome's attention. Pilate wasn't going to execute somebody because they committed blasphemy against the Jewish religion. But the charge of sedition, that would get the attention of a Roman governor. So they changed the charge from blasphemy for saying he was the son of God to treason. He's saying he's the king of the Jews. Well, that was different. The last thing Pilate needed was a religious zealot leading a revolt against the empire. But after interrogating Jesus, Pilate wasn't convinced. When he asked Jesus if he were the king of the Jews, Jesus' answer was a little ambiguous. Remember how clearly he said, I am, to the Sanhedrin. But when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews, he says, if you say so. Eh, That's what you say. It's very obvious that Pilate and Jesus had different definitions of what it meant to be king of the Jews. And so when it seemed like sedition wasn't going to get the job done, the Pharisees and Sadducees just started hurling accusations at Jesus, just hoping that something would stick. And that's when Pilate knew that envy was the real reason the chief priests wanted Jesus dead. Pilate decided Jesus wasn't a threat to Rome. This was not worthy of his time or attention, and he was ready to release Jesus. Now listen, this was Jesus' chance. This was Jesus' one opportunity to get out of this situation, and Jesus stayed silent. That amazed Pilate. Didn't this man understand what was happening? Did he want to die? Why didn't he defend himself? But Jesus wouldn't answer. It's almost like Pilate showed Jesus the escape hatch. All right, Jesus, here's your way out. And Jesus closed it and stood silent and resolute, waiting for what was about to come. Pilate was stuck between a rock and a hard place. He he believed in Roman jurisprudence. He believed in justice. He didn't want to unjustly condemn an innocent man to death, but 
Pilate couldn't stand the members of the Sanhedrin either, and he didn't need a riot on his hands. In fact, we know from historical records that Pilate was already on shaky ground here. He had mismanaged the Jewish people before, oftentimes leading into some bloody riots, and Caesar wasn't happy about that. So he wanted to keep Caesar happy. And so we see that though Jesus was on trial before Pilate, once again, really it was Pilate who was on trial. He was on trial before the crowd. He was on trial before Caesar. He was on trial before Christ. And Pilate's cowardice revealed his guilt, condemning Jesus for political gain. The Sanhedrin rejected Jesus for tradition. Peter for safety. Pilate for politics. And Pilate thought he was clever by giving the crowd the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, who was a real threat, who was a real, honestly dangerous man, but he didn't understand this was always the choice that humanity has had to make. Will we choose the one who heals or the one who harms? Will we choose life or will we choose death? Will we choose the ways of God? Or will we choose the ways of man? That's always been the choice before us. Pilate chose the path of least political resistance. He rejected truth in favor of personal power and protection. John has an interesting exchange in his account of this. It says in John 18 that Pilate asked Jesus, You are a king then? And Jesus replied, You say that I'm a king. Jesus goes on to say, I was born for this and I've come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked, what is truth? Pilate couldn't recognize truth standing right in front of him. But neither could the Sanhedrin and the priests. Neither could the crowd. Neither could Peter. Every one of them rejected truth. The religious leaders made up their own evidence. They drummed up charges. They rejected truth so they could condemn truth. Peter, he he lied in fear, in self-preservation. He denied that he ever knew Jesus. He rejected truth. And Pilate knew the truth, that Jesus was innocent, yet to save his political career, he rejected truth and condemned Jesus to die. Listen, we're also on trial. You and I. Every single day. We're on trial in the eyes of God. Every day God is examining our hearts and minds, our motives and actions, our words. Every day. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. We stand every day under God's watchful eye. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your mind. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He sees every bit of us, the good, bad, and the ugly. But the world is also judging us. We're on trial before the world. They're watching us. They're examining us. They're looking to see if we really believe what we say we believe. They're looking to see if Jesus really does make a difference in our lives. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4. He tells us to act wisely toward outsiders and make the most of the time. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you should answer each person. Paul understood. The world is watching us. They're listening to what we have to say. 
And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, that we should therefore let our light shine before others so they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. How will we stand up to the scrutiny? Are we willing to let God search our minds? Try our thoughts? See if there's any wicked way within us and lead us in the way of righteousness? Are we willing to do that? Maybe right now you're being convicted of a sin in your life. Something right now the Spirit is convicting you of. One of those pet sins you don't want to give up. Something maybe nobody knows about. Maybe it's a bad attitude. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's an anger issue. Maybe it's a decision that you've been reluctant to make that you know is the right thing to do, but you won't do it. God is our righteous judge. And listen to me. You can either submit to His judgment now, a judgment that will purify you, a judgment that will bring His grace and mercy to bear in your life and transform you from the inside out to be who you were meant to be, or you can resist Him now and stand before Him at the end of time and be judged when it's too late to make a change. And you'll suffer the consequences for eternity. God is your judge. You will stand before His judgment either acquitted because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He took your guilt and shame upon Himself. He said, Father, I will suffer the punishment they deserve. You can either face God now and experience that grace and mercy or you can resist it and face Him at the end of time. And there's nothing more to be said but depart from me, I never knew you. Which is it for you? I implore you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never come to Him and said, God, I am guilty, I know I'm a sinner, I stand condemned before you already, Jesus, I pray you would forgive me of my sins. I ask you to come and live inside of me and help me to be the person that you want me to be. If you've never done that, I invite you to come right now and settle it today. You can know that you will stand before Him innocent and righteous because of what Jesus did, or you can spend your life always wondering what will happen to you after you die. Which will it be? And if you're already a believer, maybe God is laying something else on your heart. Maybe God is leading you to unite with this church family. Maybe God is calling you to surrender to Him in some form of service to His kingdom. Maybe there's something in your life you still need to settle with God and, and, and give over to Him that you've been hanging on to. Whatever the Spirit is leading you to do today, you can either deny Him, reject Him, or you can come today in submission and obedience. What will you do? Would you stand and pray with me? Father, truly as we read this story of what Jesus endured and suffered that night that He was betrayed, it, it shocks us, it breaks our heart to think of what the righteous Lamb of God endured and experienced so unjustly that night. But God... It's because of our sin. It's because of us that He endured that. And we truly are the ones on trial. Father, You are examining us even right now. You know our hearts. You know our motives. You know our thoughts and attitudes. You know every horrible thing we've said and done. And apart from Christ, we stand before You condemned, guilty sinners deserving of eternal damnation. 
you are a God of grace and mercy and love. And you made the way through Jesus that we could be made right with you. That our sins could be atoned and paid for. That we could be made pure and righteous in your eyes. Not through anything we could ever do, but through what Jesus himself has already done. And if there's anybody here that needs to do that today and experience that transformation, I pray they would come right now. And Father, if you're speaking to us about any other decision we need to make, may we be obedient, may we be trusting in you, and not walk out of this place rejecting what you've said to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.